Well, good morning. Not sure if you ever sang the gospel before, but you just did. And that's a beautiful thing. <clears throat> I know I have Acts 13 up there. We're going to start actually in Matthew 13 this morning. So if you'd like to turn there. I'll do two things while you're doing that. I'll take off my jacket. <laughs> my theory is Marshall must have dropped it down to his Nordic temperatures before Sunday school, and we overcorrected. <clears throat> the other thing is, men of Solomon's Porch, we are meeting today at 4 o'clock uh, to talk about chapter 2 of our book. All right, let me read Matthew 13. Starting in verse 24. Still hear some pages turning. I'll give you another second. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn." What's the point of all that parable talk? Well, faithful gospel ministry means preaching the whole counsel of God. And that includes things like God's infinite grace, his mercy, his love. You'll find that in churches all across the spectrum, those truths seldom divide us. But it also includes God's holiness, God's wrath, the unchanging nature of his justice, the reality of hell. These truths tend to cause division. But we must trust that the gospel will do the winnowing that we see in this parable. Ultimately, Christ will separate and harvest perfectly. In Matthew 3.12, John the Baptist identified that one who would one day separate. He said his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Here's the point of my title. The gospel is inherently divisive. And it affects both unbelievers and saints. Believers respond with joy. We'll see that at the end of our passage today. The lost respond with anger, condescension, disgust, maybe apathy. Sometimes unbelieving visitors might walk out of a Sunday sermon that preaches these hard truths. Sometimes professing Christians don't like them either. Why? Because the gospel commands us to humble ourselves and to renounce dependence on our own strength, our own works, our own religious backgrounds. And it commands us to submit to sovereign grace. And that message is humbling. And let's be honest, our pride doesn't like to be humbled. The gospel winnows the church by doing just that, by offending our pride. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, if my slide advances, there we go. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. What's Paul saying? That there's no neutrality in the gospel. There's no neutrality in people either. There are two types, saved and unsaved. 
Sometimes the work of dividing the wheat from the chaff is instantaneous. Sometimes it's far more gradual. No doubt there is a terror or two in this auditorium this morning. Maybe even ignorant of the fact that they're not saved. Perhaps fully aware of that fact and going through the motions. And unless that person identifies him or herself as such, it's not the job of the fellow believer to come down with a final judgment on that designation. Not to say we don't discern, not to say we don't counsel, not to say we don't disciple, but we trust the word preached to convict. And we know with certainty that Jesus knows his fields very well. No tares will be part of the kingdom harvest. But until that harvest occurs, we're called to love, we're called to serve, first and foremost within the household of God. We talked about this on Wednesday night. The preaching of the gospel motivates the departure of unbelievers and irresistibly attracts true believers. How is the church purified through the preaching of the gospel? And this process sometimes can be painful. Sometimes it can be sad, but it's necessary. If we want unity, it must be built around Christ and his gospel. Mark Dever once said, The exclusivity that fuels a blazing hot community of believers can do far more gospel work than watering down the breadth and depth of commitment in order to feel more inclusive. That's what Paul will do this morning in a synagogue. And I, and I don't want us to miss this context of it. Paul is a Jewish man surrounded by other Jews who are going to reject his message of the gospel. And Paul's Jewish roots certainly tempted him to compromise. We'll see this and we'll reference some of this, but Romans 9 to 11, you see Paul's love for his countrymen. You see Paul's love for the Jewish people. He even goes so far to say, I would set my salvation aside if they would only believe on the Messiah that was sent to them. And yet, he does not compromise. He's obedient to God, and, and, and he extends the gospel message not just to the Jews in attendance, but to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth, because he's obedient to the commands of God. That's not an easy thing to do in a world that stands against us. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for our time of worship already. We want to lift your name high. We want to magnify you, your name, your gospel, your son, the cross especially this week as we look forward to the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Bless the preaching and teaching of your word this morning, Lord. May you be honored and glorified by all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's our outline for this morning. We're going to see Paul's res- the response of the people to Paul's sermon. We covered Paul's sermon two weeks ago, and here we have the response to it. And what you'll see is, early on, it seems like it's a very positive thing. But that's going to turn very quickly. I want to take a sidebar right after that into Romans 10 very quickly to to where Paul really, you know, extends and and talks about what's going on in this episode. And then we'll go back to the text where Paul turns from the Jews to the Gentiles and we'll see the results of that preaching. So turn over to Acts 13 and we will start there in verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, this is after Paul has preached that sermon, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. They get an invitation back. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. So that's our initial response to Paul's preaching. The people kept begging that they would come back, and speak these things a week later. 
Many of the Jews, many of the God-fearing proselytes, so Gentiles who have converted to Judaism, or at least are attending as God-fearers at the synagogue, were urging them to continue. And I think you see the, the, the full gamut here. We see people with casual interest. We want to hear more about this. Come back next Saturday. And we've got others that say, I can't wait till next Saturday. And they follow Paul and Barnabas down the street to get more and more information. That's a genuine desire to know more. The important part here is that the Lord has provided an opportunity, a second opportunity at this synagogue in Pisidian Antioch for the gospel to be presented. So they come back the next week, verse 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. Seven days later, Paul and Barnabas come to find a full house at the synagogue, standing room only. And it's both Jews and Gentiles. And and here's what we know about the city. Pisidian Antioch was predominantly Gentile. So when Luke says that the whole city, nearly the whole city came out, we've got a lot of Gentiles showing up at the synagogue. Probably ones that don't normally go to the synagogue. It's a rare Gentile audience here at a very Jewish place. We know proselytes and God-fearers would have come to this synagogue every week, but this is nearly the whole city. That shows us that this is a large and diverse turnout. What's clear here? That the Gentiles who heard Paul's sermon the previous week understood that the invitation to repent and believe on Christ for salvation was extended to them. That they had an opportunity to know God. And so they returned, and they didn't return alone. They brought friends and family with them. Isn't that how it's supposed to go? But then there's the other side of the coin, and that's verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. The result is jealousy from the Jews. Now you'll remember in the sermon, all he did was quote Old Testament texts. All he did was say, this is your Messiah. He came to you. He differentiated them from the Gentiles in attendance. And yet they come and they contradict the things that Paul says. They begin blaspheming. And that's blasphemy because they are speaking against the very word of God. What they're thinking is, it's one thing to proclaim the coming of the Messiah to the Jews. It's quite another to maintain that the Messiah accepted Gentiles on an equal basis. To them, the Jews in attendance, this is short of blasphemy, maybe just a little bit, and Paul's witness to them was over. Well, let's bring it back to ourselves, because we don't have a Jewish-Gentile divide. We are almost exclusively Gentile. But don't we have to guard against similar biases, similar preferences? Sometimes we struggle when people come into our assembly that aren't just like us, And I'm speaking of a variety of differences, but for us, it's normally different church backgrounds. It's normally different traditions. The fact is that many of you in recent years have come to PBC and we don't preach and teach the way that your previous churches or pastors did. And and, and that's okay. I want to tell you that. That's okay. An MDiv from an accredited seminary is not required for you to attend PBC. The fact is I hope you will grow here. I hope you will hear Christ exalted here. I hope you will come to love the word of God here more and more. For those of us in-house, we should rejoice that people whom the Lord has blessed us with, and, and, and we should be eager to come alongside them. God forbid we should ever take the attitude of the Jews in Antioch who could not imagine sharing the pew, let alone a meal or meaningful fellowship with someone so different from them. Charles Spurgeon once said, Our joy is that we have to deal today with lost souls who are not yet hopelessly lost. Lord, grant us that privilege and those opportunities. And so when we think about that, that picture of 
of the pew, and that's my seat, and that's my place. Perhaps I've even donated the pew. We don't have pews here, but you know what I'm saying. F.F. Bruce said, knowing, as we unfortunately do, how pious Christian pew holders can manifest quite unchristian indignation when they arrive at church on a Sunday morning to find their places occupied by rank outsiders. We can readily appreciate the annoyance of the Jewish community at finding their synagogue practically taken over by a Gentile congregation on this occasion. But what's the point here? These Gentiles were going to hear the gospel. A great many of them will come to Christ for salvation. That is well worth any perceived inconvenience. And there's a much larger theological issue at stake, and it falls at the feet of the Jewish people who should know better. Of all people, they should know better. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 10. And we could read a lot of Romans 10 through, 9 through 11 to talk about this point, but we'll zoom in on this passage starting in Romans 10, 16. In chapter 10, he's talking about the preaching of the word and that there, there is a blessing for those that bring good news and all that kind of stuff and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's quoting scriptures throughout. But here's what he says in verse 16, speaking specifically of this situation with the Jewish people. He says, however... They did not all heed the good news, they being Israel. They did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Notice Paul's argument here is not based on his preferences. It's based on the word of God. So let's go through those verses very quickly. Verse 16, however, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? That is Isaiah 53, verse 1. That is the suffering servant song of that chapter. Who has believed our report? The fortunate answer here is not all of Israel has. They should have, but they haven't. They ran true to form, just like Peter has preached earlier in this book, just as Stephen has preached, just as Paul has already preached. Paul goes on to say, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The message was preached, and it has always been preached by faithful messengers of God to the Jewish people. Now, before we just go, oh, look at those silly Jews, look at those stiff-necked people, look at that stubborn group of people, understand that if you have been growing up in this country, you have had access to the gospel like no other generation in history. Even if you haven't been in church, you've heard John 3.16. You've seen those things. If you've been to a football game, you saw a guy holding up the sign, and you went and read it and figured out what it said, Whether you understood it or not, you've had access to it. But it's the preached word of God, and Israel had that in abundance. And and I would say they had it in exclusive abundance. One commentator said, All effective preaching is accomplished by God himself. The messenger is at best merely the instrument used by the Holy Spirit as a necessary part of the process. It is God's own voice that confronts the sinner and offers reconciliation. The existential reality is what constitutes the gospel, 
the power of God for salvation. I am just a herald. The elders are just heralds. We are just proclaimers of a gospel. We are representatives of one much greater than ourselves. And the fact is, in the Jewish world, the gospel had been proclaimed. It had been proclaimed from the beginning, and it has been the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the law and the prophets and the writings pointed to him. Christ, us told, Christ told us as much. So the four obje- possible objecti- objections that Paul addresses in Romans 10 is, we haven't heard, we, ha- we alone deserve it, we're the chosen people, we haven't been given a chance to believe, and we couldn't understand. Now a lot of those are fairly parallel, but those are the excuses. So let's look at them one by one. 10.18 says, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? That's Paul asking a rhetorical question. Have the Jews never heard this? Indeed they have, he says. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. That's quoting Psalm 19.4. He, he questions whether or not they had the opportunity to hear. The answer is, of course they did. And the response, again, is based upon Psalm 19, which celebrates the revelation of God's glory through the created order, especially the heavens. In context, what Paul is saying, or what Psalm 19 is saying, and Paul is, is, is referencing, is that the creation itself speaks to the glory of the Creator. Think Romans 1. That's what he's saying here. In other words, the unseen things of God are seen from the creation of the world. That you should be able to look around this world and go, okay, somebody created this. It's too diverse, it's too intricate, it's too precise Now, that's not going to get you to Christianity, but it should get you to the existence of a God, and you should want to know who that God is if he created all this stuff. Again, Paul uses that similar argument in Romans 1 to say that all people are without excuse because you see the design when you look around. He goes along to verse 19. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? And then he says, of course they did. Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. Deuteronomy 32, 21, that's from the Song of Moses, where the Lord is responding to Israel's rebellion and idolatry. That's shortly after the golden calf, if you remember all that. They had provoked him to jealousy with with gods who were not gods. And so what does God say? I will provoke you to jealousy with a nation that's not a nation. Just as anyone today who rejects the gospel, especially in a Western context, they don't do it for lack of understanding. It's not simple ignorance. They do it in sinful rebellion to the truth of God. There is such a thing as ignorance, but it can't be applied to the Jewish people. And I would argue it can't be applied to our country today, even as more ignorant as we are becoming in the years, as the years go on. It's a willful blindness to the truth. And that's a problem. Romans 10, 20. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. By the way, Paul cites Isaiah more than any other Old Testament book, if you want to trace that out. But he says, look, they have no excuse. Look who found them. The Gentiles found God, and he didn't even go to them. So Israel, you can't claim that, oh, we couldn't do it. We didn't know how to do it. Well, the Gentiles figured it out, and they didn't even have revelation. So what's your excuse? The Lord provokes Israel with a non-people or a non-nation because the Lord has revealed himself to a people that did not know him or seek him. The point is this, if the unbelieving Gentiles can understand, surely the enlightened Jews should be able to understand too. So their rejection must have been intentional. It must have been sin. Verse 21, finally, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. That's also from Isaiah 65. 
This is basically Stephen's sermon from chapter 7. The Lord invited Israel to come, but their love for idols and sin overtook them and they rejected the Lord. They simply refuse in their hard-heartedness. They are disobedient. They are obstinate. And the Jews of Pisidian Antioch have now joined the Jews of Jerusalem in rejecting their Savior. God's initiative to Israel is even more pronounced. He doesn't simply allow himself to be found. He doesn't just hide in the corner and go, well, if you discover me, it's not an Easter egg hunt. He actively holds out his hands to his people. It's a parent inviting a child to come home. God has opened and stretched out his arms to his people. And if that weren't enough, he has kept them continuously outstretched to Israel. But he has received no response. They don't even give, a, give the neutral response of the Gentiles who decline to either ask or to seek. No, their response is negative, resistant, dismissive. They're determined to remain disobedient. They're determined to remain, remain obstinate. To quote the phrase again, sin makes you stupid. Their fall was their fault, and yet it was also grounded in God's sovereignty. Let's look ahead to what he says in Romans 11. Paul says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. That's covenant faithfulness, by the way. We could talk about that for a while. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Brock, didn't you talk about jealousy this morning with the young people? To make them jealous. Paul's going to return to that point over and over again in that passage. But the rejection of Christ by Israel sets the condition for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. And and that built the church of the living God to the very ends of the earth, which will in turn accomplish the jealousy of the Jews in an eschatological program in which Israel will be brought to the end of herself and recognize Jesus as Messiah. All of this comes together in the plan of God. And we see the beginning of this process in verse 45. When the Jews saw the crowds... They were filled with what? Jealousy. Jealousy. Accomplishing the plan of God. Back to our text. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. The word boldly there is common in Acts. It's used seven times. It describes Paul's preaching in both Damascus and Jerusalem in chapter 9 following his conversion. That word describes confidence. It describes a freedom with words. It's unapologetic. It's uncompromising. This is going to be the hallmark of Paul's preaching. Bold, uncompromising proclamation of the gospel. But where does this boldness come from? Only the filling of the Holy Spirit. Paul has had it since his radical transformation in chapter 9. As soon as he got his sight back, the only thing he could do was go and preach Christ. What did the Jews do in turn? They repudiate the gospel. The Greek word there is apatheo. It means to thrust away. It's not, eh, we disagree. No, this is a a wholesale rejection. Paul uses it in 1 Timothy 1.19 in reference to Hymenaeus and Alexander, among others, who have rejected the faith and suffered shipwreck in regards to their faith. He says they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. Crino is a common word in the New Testament. It means to judge or to determine. In other words, they have already pronounced judgment upon themselves by rejecting the gospel. They've shown who they are. The Jews in Antioch could not accept the gospel being extended to Gentiles. Their Messiah would never do such a thing. 
And in that, they are correct. (laughs) Their Messiah would not. And their Messiah is still to come in their minds. But the Messiah does exactly that. Fulfilling scripture and drawing all nations to himself. And yet while Paul becomes an apostle to the Gentiles, this is important and it it so colors in our understanding of what kind of man and what kind of evangelist Paul was and how well he knew the scriptures. Paul turns to the Gentiles, he becomes an apostle to the Gentiles, but he never forsakes his Jewish brethren. He never turns away from his Jewish brethren. Romans 9 through 11 show a Jewish man who has come to faith in Christ who is heartbroken about the unbelief of his own people. The very people Jesus came to save initially. And when we get to Acts 14.1, in the next town, guess where Paul's going to be? In a synagogue, sharing the gospel with the Jewish people of the town. And this is the definitive Pauline pattern from Romans 1.16 to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So in spite of the overwhelming rejection of the gospel by his own people, Paul could not bring himself to believe that the rejection was final and that God had deserted them. God forbid, he says in Romans 10. His great successes and witness were indeed among the Gentiles. That's what we know him for. But he never abandoned his witness to the Jews. Consider this, that over a decade later, probably 13, 14 years later, in Acts 28, he is in Rome for that imprisonment. And the first people he meets with are the Jewish leaders in Rome. He's been being persecuted by the Jewish people for 14 years, and he still takes the gospel to them first. What's the lesson for us? The gospel is to be preached to all people without apology and without qualification. If we limit ourselves to those that are like us, or those we believe are more receptive to the gospel, we minimize the saving power of God, and we put him in a box of our own design. Verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He quotes Isaiah again. This is Isaiah 49.6, one of the servant passages of Isaiah, which was fulfilled in Christ. These are the very words that Simeon spoke in Luke 2.32 when he held the infant Christ. Later, Luke would cite these words again in Paul's account of his conversion before Agrippa in Acts 26. The light of the world that would lead Gentiles to God and salvation. Also, we've heard the concluding words of this passage before, to the end of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. That's Jesus' command to his apostles. That's the evangelistic program for the church. And it's founded in the promises of God and the obedience of his people. Verse 48, look at the reaction of the Gentiles. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing. They had joy, and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Remember Isaiah 65, 1 that we just covered in Romans 10, 20. I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. And when you were not looking, you were not seeking, and yet God reached down and gave you salvation, what reaction could you have but rejoicing and glorifying the Lord? When they heard the gospel, when the Spirit made them alive, when they believed on Christ for salvation, their response was joy. They were rejoicing. The Jews rejected. The Jews repudiated. The Jews judged themselves unworthy. The Gentiles rejoiced. Notice how stark the difference is. That word Cairo is to be exceedingly glad. It was the reaction of the wise men to the star in Matthew 2.10. 
It was the, re- the reaction of the disciples to the risen Jesus in John 20, 20. The Ethiopian eunuch left rejoicing in Acts eight thirty nine. Joy is the residue of salvation. What other reaction can one have at the news that sins have been forgiven and eternal life has been granted? They were also glorifying the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord preached on this day, the gospel. They were glorifying that truth. That glorifying word is a common reaction to all of Jesus' miracles. Those people that are healed would go away glorifying God. Those in attendance often did the same. But here, what are these Gentiles glorifying? It's not the Lord directly. It's the word of the Lord. But in glorifying the word of the Lord, you glorify the Lord. How so? Because the Lord wrote that word. He spoke that word. And to glorify the Lord who was and is the word incarnate, Christ himself, you are glorifying the Lord. Practically speaking, they could not get enough of the word. They pursued Paul. Tell us more. Tell us more about this Christ. So question for us, does that describe your interactions with the word? When Christ revealed those words to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, their hearts burned within them. Do you read God's word? Do you study it? Do you love it? As you know, according to various surveys, it's estimated that over 90% of professing Christians have never read the Bible in its entirety. Now, I'm not saying that's a requirement for salvation, but I'm telling you that's a noble thing to pursue. I'm telling you that's something that if we claim to believe every word of this book, maybe we should read every word of this book, even the fine print in Leviticus, read it all. And, and if that's you this morning, I haven't yet done that, for whatever reason that might be. Can I challenge you to complete that objective this year, to read the Bible cover to cover? There are reading plans. There are different things you can do to approach that. When I was 23, I came to Christ. Uh, December of this year, I'll be 21, get to my legal Christian age. Um, but I, I came to Christ at 23, entirely biblically illiterate. I, I, was, I, I didn't know anything that was going on in that. I, Christ saved me, and it was like, all right, what do I do now? And, 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 and so, I, I, and then about a year later, nine months later, I met my wife <clears throat> who knew her Bible and grew up in a Christian home. And I said, man, if I'm going to leave this home, I better start reading the Bible. Um, I better start, get, get on this job. And so I would go, I was a teacher at the time, and we were on a 90-minute block schedule. And so I would go during my planning period, and I would go down to our basketball office, because I was a coach as well, and I would just read for like 90 minutes, an hour to 90 minutes each planning period. Um, probably wasn't the best use of my planning period from a professional standpoint, but it was a very good use of my planning period from a spiritual standpoint. And I read through the Bible in about four months. Now, don't do it that way. <laughs> That's, talk about drinking from a fire hydrant. That's what that is. But I'm telling you that if you commit to it, if you put the time into it and you, you commit to reading it, you will complete it. Because okay? that's a noble thing to be pursuing, to know your God more. How could, we, we all need to know our God more, and you do that through his word. If you want the Lord to speak with you, to you, then read the Bible out loud. That's the best way to hear from the Lord. We have the very words of our Lord at our fingertips May the joy of the Lord spur you on to a deeper and more focused study of his scriptures. And what's the result of that preaching? As many as have been appointed to eternal life, believed. Appointed, tasso, to appoint, to ordain, to designate. It's used to speak of making a decision. Jesus designates the meeting place for the disciples in Galilee 
in Matthew 28, 16. In Romans 13, 1, rulers and authorities are established by God, the same word. So as many as had, had been established to eternal life, as many had been appointed, ordained, designated for eternal life. There's a unique usage here in this context, but it's an intentional statement from Luke. Who is doing the saving? The Lord is doing the saving. John Calvin said this verse teaches that faith depends on God's choice. Since the whole human race is blind and stubborn, those faults remain fixed in our nature until they are corrected by the grace of the Spirit, and that comes only from election. At the same time, we're not passive observers in that process. We must make a profession of faith. Action is required, and that was evident in these new believers. They believed, they rejoiced, they glorified. Why? Because they had been appointed to eternal life. Because God called them to himself. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. You know what? That tends to happen. Because saved people want to make more saved people. Saved people want to share that gospel with others. Again, we're just beggars showing other beggars where the bread is. That's great news. But where there is advance in the kingdom, isn't it interesting, persecution seems to accompany it. And it's sandwiched between good news. We find this great news here, and and, and then we find that ever-present persecution. And what do you know? Persecution comes to the Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. Verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. That word incited literally means to stir up. It's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. And, and uh, Paul mentions these persecutions later in his correspondence to Timothy in Ephesus. So while we don't get a lot of detail here, it must have been memorable because he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.11, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra. Guess what? That's in two weeks. We'll get to those two cities. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord rescued me. So who did, he, who did the Jews incite? Just a little context. Devout women of prominence. We think probably this is these are the wives of the proselytes and the God-fearers, with the goal being to make one's home life difficult. That, that if I can incite the wives of prominence, perhaps they can make their husbands persecute the church. Interestingly, this is an interesting cultural note, Greco-Roman women, and, and, and Josephus talks about this, Philo talks about this, were often attracted to Judaism. And you go, well, that seems kind of strange. Why would they be attracted to Judaism? Well, think about what the family situation was like in the Roman Empire at this time. And, they, they, you know, we've talked about this, that men would have mistresses. Men would have all these different things, and, and, and the family was not the centerpiece. And women were treated uh, quite badly. And so being a woman in the Roman Empire was difficult. And so they looked at Judaism, at least on paper. I'm not saying the Jews always practiced this. But on paper, Judaism was a religion of morality. It was a religion of, of family stability. And, and, and furthermore, a woman, unlike a man, a woman to become a full proselyte, didn't have to submit to something as invasive as circumcision. A lot easier for a woman to be a proselyte, and so it happened oftentimes, and that these women could influence their probably influential husbands. And that's what we seem to see happening here. Because then we have the leading men of the city. It's a Gentile city. Gentiles are being incited against Paul and Barnabas. And so think about this. You've got Jewish leaders working with Gentile rulers in order to persecute the church. Have we seen this before in the history of the church? We saw it with Christ in Jerusalem. 
And, and, and by the way, that is hypocrisy at its finest, is it not? Jews would not even interact with Gentiles. That was not allowed. It's defilement. But if you have an agenda that requires Gentile leaders to help you accomplish your goals, you'll work with them all day long. This is the Caiaphas model. That's what they follow. We'll see more about that on Friday when we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 51, the reaction of Paul and his companions to that persecution. They shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And this is somewhat ironic because this is a very Jewish thing. The rabbis attested to the Jewish practice of shaking the dust off their feet when they returned from a trip to Gentile territory. You didn't even want to bring that Gentile dirt back into Jewish territory. So you shook your sandals off. And that symbolized the defilement. When they came back into the Holy Land, they didn't want any Gentile dirt. Jewish pilgrims would do the same thing before they entered the Temple Mount because they went to even holier ground. And not only is that act rooted in Jewish tradition, it was commanded by Jesus himself. Maybe you remember in Luke 10, Jesus says, But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its street and say, Even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. That's exactly what's happening here. Paul and Barnabas' dust-shaking symbolized they're ridding themselves of responsibility to the unreceptive and unbelieving Jews. We proclaim the gospel faithfully to you. You have pronounced judgment on yourself by rejecting that. But the encouraging truth from all this is that despite all of that, and more to the point because of it, the disciples are emboldened, and the gospel is going to hit the road once again, ready to be preached in the next city. And that city is Iconium. Lystra and Derby will soon follow. We'll arrive there in two weeks, a little longer journey than Paul probably had to take to get those 90 miles. But it's about 90 miles southeast of Antioch. But what about the disciples left behind, our final verse, verse 52? And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of rejection, the reaction is joy, and the reality is the Holy Spirit working in his people. The counterintuitive attitude comes only through the Holy Spirit. Most people, when persecution and resistance come, we back off. No, not the church. It gives us power. It gives us boldness. Spurgeon said this, It's not to sorrow, but to joy that the great king invites his subjects when he glorifies his son Jesus. It is for love. In the gospel center, you were invited to be reconciled to God. You were assured that God forgives your sins, ceases to be angry, and would have you reconciled to him through his son. Thus love is established between God and the soul. Then it is for laughter, for happiness, for joy. Those who come to God in Christ Jesus and believe in him have their hearts filled with overflowing peace. Do you know that peace? Which calm lake of peace often lifts itself in waves of joy which clap their hands in exultation. It is not to sorrow but to joy that the great king invites his subject when he glorifies his son Jesus. It is not that you may be distressed but that you may be delighted that he bids you believe in the crucified Savior and live. And don't miss the context. That's in the context of suffering and persecution. We have joy. So, let's conclude. I mentioned earlier that the gospel divides, that it separates. But for the body of Christ, it does the opposite. It brings us an otherworldly peace. What the world doesn't understand in all its clamoring for world peace... Remember, that was kind of the, the idea every time there was a Miss USA pageant. You know, what do you want? World peace. We want world peace. But in all that desire for world peace, the only peace that matters is truth-based 
peace. And I would argue there's only one source for perfect truth. And it's our responsibility to put that peace on full display, especially within our local body. See, I don't think the world stumbles mainly over the fact that there are doctrinal disagreements among Christians. I don't think that's the issue. I think it stumbles mainly over the way we treat each other in light of those disagreements. At the same time, let's be honest, the conditions of the church and of the world in which the church finds itself, even though that missioning is happening successfully, is not always pretty. It's not always exactly as we would want. Why? Because there are doctrinal disagreements. And so this is the balance we have to have, right? Strong doctrine, we make stands on that, we cling to that, we don't compromise on that, and yet we have to serve and love, and we're, we're trying to keep those things balanced. One can't get out of balance of the other, or we lose the picture of the church. Some divisions have to be made for the health of the church. But even Jesus, back to our parable, told us that the wheat and the tares would be present in the church. So the kingdom the, 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 to come... The visible church now draws into itself unconverted people that the angels will separate out in the days to come. Some of those tares will believe the gospel and be made into wheat. Some of the immature wheat might appear to be a tear today, but the harvest will come tomorrow. We are, we are workers in the field. We wonder if we should go up and pull up all the weeds that are among the wheat, root out false brothers and sisters. But what did Jesus tell us? Allow both grow together until the harvest. We preach Christ crucified, we love the saints, we hold fast to the gospel, and we certainly employ discernment, but we trust the Lord with the harvest. And by the way, Christ fills us in on the results of that harvest in Matthew 13, 43, when he says, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So let me close with two questions that I think is worth us reflecting on this week. One, are we trusting Christ and his gospel to both divide and unify his church as he sees fit? And two, are we obedient to the command that we are called to make disciples and to love one another as Christ has loved us? That's what I want us to think about as we lead this week up to the glorious resurrection of our Savior on Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We glorify your word, your perfect word, your perfect truth, Lord, and your perfect Son, who is the very word incarnate. Thank you for the message of salvation that I pray many of us have believed, many of us have trusted in for our eternity. I do pray for conviction. I pray that you would conform us to the image of your Son. I pray that if we have unbelievers in the room, surely we do, Lord, and you know the condition of souls and hearts, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would bring to them the reality of the perfect Son, the buried Son, the risen Son, the ascended Son what we will celebrate on Sunday, the greatest day of the Christian faith, the day that you rose from the grave. Lord, let that drive us. Let that conform us. Let that form us into what you would have us be as sons and daughters, as servants of the great King. May we be bold in our proclamation of the gospel. May we be bold in our love for one another, in our fellowship with one another, in our service to you. And may you get all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.